Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me slash voices. Good afternoon and welcome to Voices in Leadership. I'm Eric Anderson, the Deputy Director of the program, and I have the honor of introducing our distinguished guest. James Ryan is the Dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education and the best-selling author of Wait, What? and Life's Other Essential Questions. A believer in the power of inquiry, he has identified the five fundamental questions that are key to a good and successful life. Based on his viral 2016 commencement address, the book applies these questions to problems both great and small, from everyday situations to once-in-a-lifetime crises, and shows how they help bring clarity and wisdom. And he reminds those in search of answers that any answer is only as good as the question asked. A leading expert on law and education, Dean Ryan has written extensively about the ways in which law structures educational opportunity. His research addresses topics including school desegregation, school finance, school choice, standards and testing, pre-K, and the intersection of special education and neuroscience. Recently, Dean Ryan was named the next president of the University of Virginia. Before I turn the session over to today's interviewer, our very own Dean Michelle Williams. Please join me as we welcome James Ryan to the Voices and Leadership Series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's, it's lovely to see the studio audience, and welcome to those of you who are watching from remote sites. The goal of this live webcast program is to enhance the leadership and the decision-making knowledge of our students, our faculty, and others who are interested in these issues as they work to generate new ideas and strategies to address challenging global and domestic problems. Dean Ryan, thank you again for being with us here today. I know how busy your schedule is having the responsibility of uh, being the dean of a school, a uh, professional school of education. But I have to say we're really deeply <coughs> delighted that you're here with us, and I want to welcome you to our in-house audience, and I also want to welcome those of you who are online joining us. Before I begin the questioning uh, interview session with Dean Ryan, I want to extend my warmest congratulations to you on your selection as the next president of the University of Virginia. While we, you will be very missed here, um, we are all excited about the opportunities that's presented to you as you take on this new and very important role in your career. So congratulations, and you will be missed here at the school, but since we have you for the rest of the academic year, we thought how wonderful that you would spend your time with us. Uh, well, thanks very much. I'm, I'm really delighted and honored to be here. Thank you. So in reflecting on today's session, I thought, you're the expert on asking the questions. And here I am <laughs> asking the questions. I'll you actually I'll don't need <laughs> me for this session. <laughs> well, no, let me give it a stab. I'm, I'm going to answer your questions by asking you questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was afraid of. <laughs> um, really, um, in all seriousness, um, it's no accident that the title of this event, 
is Five Essential Questions in Life. I think it's such an important subtitle to the title that I really also like, and it's, wait, what? <laughs> and for those of you who've raised teenagers, how many times have you had, wait, what? <laughs> um, and I just think it's such a brilliant way to open up to begin to start to tell important stories. Um, and what some people might not know that this is the same title for your now very famous commencement speech that you gave last year. So for those of you who are not familiar, I wonder if you could give us a summary of how we can cultivate the art of asking really good questions. Sure. Um, so I think some of it is just about uh, being curious and being courageous enough mm -hmm. to ask questions. You know, when I gave the talk at graduation a couple of years ago, um, I thought it would be an opportune time to remind the graduating students uh, that they should cultivate the art of asking good questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I listed the, those five questions that I called essential as a way of making more concrete the general message. Um, but I don't think that there's any magic to it. I do think that in some, of, in some respects it is um, just an approach to life. And I do think that some of it is just remaining curious about the world. Um, and some of it is having the courage to ask questions. You know, you see all the time, ironically, often in academia, mm -hmm. um, that people are worried about asking questions. They're worried because um, they're, they're worried that they're going to be embarrassed um, or that they're going to ask a, you know, a dumb question. And so you often see, if you have a classroom of 40 or 50 students, you'll ask, are there any questions? And no one will raise his or her hand. And then mm -hmm. some brave soul does. And then you see everyone else nodding. <laughs> grateful that someone had asked a question. So I think some of it is just getting over the initial hesitation about feeling embarrassed by asking a question. Mm -hmm. So along the years in my own training, I remember hearing some say, and maybe I've even caught myself repeating it, don't ask the question till you have a draft answer of some sort. Tell me a little bit about how that statement, have you heard that before and how does that resonate? with your thinking about asking questions. I hadn't heard that before, and I think I know what you're, you're getting at, but, but rather than assume, why don't you yeah. tell me? So that, that there, there has been, in my own experience, um, when I ask a question, it's turned back to me because the, um, the person I'm asking the question thinks, believes that I could derive the answer myself. Oh. And so rather than, uh, you know, it's, is it a commentary on the question that's asked, how right. it's asked? Right. Or when one is asking a question, should one be encouraged to think about having some hypothesis or draft answers for those? Oh, uh, that's a nice point. I think it, it, dep it depends, on, it depends on the context. I'm also asking that because another context where we hear this in the lay public is lawyers saying, I'm not going to ask that question until I anticipate I yeah, need an answer. Right, right, so right, that, that right, actually right. has some dynamic in yeah. the comfort level in asking questions, yeah. too. So I, I think that um, it depends on the context. Uh, and so start with the lawyer context yeah. first, which is one I know well from my training. Uh, so w uh, uh, a saying you hear all the time in law school is um, don't ask a question um, where you don't already know the answer yeah. is going to be or where you don't want to know what the answer mm. is. Um, and that is just using questions in a strategic way, right, for a particular context. Mm. Um, and 
Um, that is not what this book is about. Mm -hmm. um, that is, a, that is a, a particular skill to develop where you're not asking a question in order to really gain understanding, mm -hmm. but you're asking it to prove a point right. or to achieve a goal, right? So the classic is if you have a witness on the stand and you're cross-examining the witness, you absolutely should not ask a question if you don't mm -hmm. already know what the answer is going to be because you do not want to be surprised. Mm -hmm. um, that is not the kind of questioning I'm talking about. The draft answer is really interesting because mm -hmm. I do think that there are um, plenty of instances where the questions you're posing to others you should be prepared to ask yourself. Yeah. Um, and that could be whether you're talking about an academic topic or whether you're talking about a personal topic. Uh, so I don't know if you have to go so far as to have a draft answer, but I do think that you need to be willing to ask the question of questions of yourself. Right. There's another area to this. Um, in your speech, you mentioned that we can all learn to listen carefully and generously. And, you know, I, I, I think that's a very important point, especially now in a polarizing time. And I wonder if you could speak more to how you've done this, how you've listened carefully, generously, especially in your past leadership roles. Yeah, so I think, um, I do think it's a really critical point. Um, you know, uh, Part of cultivating the habit of asking good questions is also being on the lookout for good questions mm -hmm. and being open to um, people questioning you, especially if you're in a position of leadership. And I think the most important, um, the most important thing to remember is to never be defensive um, and to recognize that even if a question is asked in a clumsy way or sometimes in a hostile way, mm -hmm. um, you should in your head be thinking, what's behind the question? Mm -hmm. What's the substance mm -hmm. behind the question? Because it's all too easy sometimes to find yourself in the midst of uh, a conflict because of the way a question was framed. Whereas if it were just asked in a slightly different way, right. um, you know, so if someone says, well, why aren't you doing this? Your immediate reaction might be to say, well, we are, or here's why we aren't. Or, yeah. But if instead yeah. they asked, have you ever thought about doing, you'd say, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So you have to be on the lookout for questions that don't necessarily come packaged as neatly or as nicely as you would like mm -hmm. and address the substance of the question and not pay attention so much to, um, to, the, to the form, which yeah. is you know, often easier said than done. Yeah. The form or, or how it was asked. Yeah, or yeah. the tone. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's. I honestly think that it's. It is. It's your job as a leader to diffuse situations in order to have a productive conversation. And sometimes yeah. diffusing situations means, in a sense, reframing or rephrasing yeah. the question. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you for that. I want to touch more on the the leadership roles, um, and I, you know, I want to think here that. Uh, there's a unique opportunity for both of us as deans of graduate professional schools here in Harvard uh, to talk about the challenges we've faced in our respective roles as deans of professional schools in a landscape of uh, broader Harvard. Yeah. Um, in the spirit of your speech, are there other questions that you think we as deans of professional schools should be asking um, ourselves? or asking of our students and our colleagues, our faculty members? 
That's a great question. I know, because I'm the you. expert. That's yeah, such a compliment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thanks, Jim. Sure. So, uh, so to th I think two of the questions that I talk about in the book are um, uh, what truly matters and how can I help? Yeah. And I think those two questions are really important if you're the dean of a professional school or the dean of any school, frankly, or the leader of any organization. Mm -hmm. um, the question of what truly matters, I think, is a really useful way to stay focused on what are you trying to accomplish as a school um, with respect to research, with respect to programming, with respect to students. Um, and that should be a question that you don't ask once every six months or once a year at a retreat. It should be a question that you ask every day. Every day. Um, because it's as important to structuring your day as it is to setting long-term goals. The other question, which is actually related, is how can I help? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I tend to think of leadership as a form of service. And so I think of the job of a dean as creating the conditions under which um, students, faculty, and staff can thrive the conditions under which they can do their very best work. Because deans, and I don't think I'm, I'm telling a, a, a secret here, deans don't actually do the work, right? We don't actually do no any, any real work. It's actually a, right? changing, life-changing, because it's the first time in your career where you're really not actually doing the work. Yeah, right, <laughs> I know, right, exactly. Yeah, I know, I know. My kids are always asking me, what do you actually do? Yeah. Well, I went to a lot of meetings. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess it's slightly better than when my five-year-old, I heard him say years and years ago, um, as I had a home office when I was a law professor, and it, his friend asked him, what does your dad do in that office? And he said, he presses buttons. Observant. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Observant. He captures it. Um, Observant. So I think that um, by asking how can I help, yeah. you know, even if you're not asking directly every single day, but thinking how can I help? How can I help students, faculty, and staff do their very best work? What are the resources that they need? What are the obstacles that they need removed? That's the way I think about um, fundamentally what deans ought to be yeah. doing. Yeah. I'm so glad that you mentioned service leadership because one of the things that I always heard when I stepped into my role as dean is what's your leadership style? Yeah. And I kind of felt it's not uh -huh. about style, it's about service. So can you share with us where you developed your ideas, thoughts, what was, was your journey to service leadership? Um, some of it, uh, some of it came from serving under uh, great deans when I was at the University of Virginia Law School. Mm -hmm. And um, whether they talked about this explicitly or not, um, it was clear that that was the way that they saw their jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and so I had that in the back of my mind uh, as I was preparing to become dean at the Ed School. And then I read feverishly you know, a dozen books on leadership and management. I mean, I was panicked because I had Senior. never, I had never managed anyone. You know, mm -hmm. I, I was responsible for one eighth of a faculty assistant's time, and I <laughs> did that really poorly. Um, and so I hadn't, I, I didn't know 
what I didn't know. Yeah. Um, and so I read, and there were all sorts of analogies mm. of leader as, right? Yeah. Leader as Messiah. And I was like, no, no not me. Not me. Uh, <laughs> you know, leader as prophet, leader as inspire. And then, mm. then there was leader as servant. And mm. I thought, right, right. Mm. That captures the way I view, yeah. I view leadership. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. So what was Drew thinking? <laughs> one eighth, one eighth. I know. Yeah, no, wow, I know. That's a big step. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, I know. I wondered that. What was Drew thinking? So he met many people, many members of my community. Oh, I think she did a fabulous job. It's <laughs> my view, and I'm sitting at the table really close. So thanks for sharing that oh, story. Thank you. Um, you know, you've mentioned a little while ago, uh, as I mentioned a little while ago, Dean Ryan will be leaving uh, the graduate school um, for education to be the next president at the University of Virginia. And you can see sort of why I'm asking the questions about his leadership journey, because this is going to be a massive, a wonderful step in your own career. And congratulations to you for Thanks. that. But we have got you here in this opportunity to talk as I'm sure you're reflecting on that next step that you're going to be taking. And so I wonder if you can share with us a bit of the story, a bit of the process of what you're going through as you're going from one-eighth to a whole school to now a whole yeah. university. Yeah. Because I'm sure our audience would like to understand this whole scaling, <laughs> learning, developmental process. Could right. you share some of your thinking sure. with that? Uh, so the way I think about it generally is that going from, and I wonder if this resonates with you, going from being a faculty member to a dean reminded me most of going from having no children to having one child. Mm. It fundamentally changed my life, changed life. Uh, and changed um, my, my wife Katie's life as well, without a child and then with a child. Uh, our mm. life was completely different before and after. I feel like going from dean to, going, to being president is like going from having one child to having 13 or 14 <laughs> children. <laughs> it's the same idea, but there are just many more um, children in your, in your yeah. family. I yeah. mean, not that I view myself as the parent of all, um, of the entire university, but I mean that I it's it. larger in scope, but not in kind. Right. Um, right. So, um, uh, I mean, to a certain extent anyway. So it means, you know, having a much larger, larger scope than simply being in charge of one school. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are aspects of the job that I'm not very familiar with at all, like the athletics department. Mm. I mean, we don't have a football or a basketball team at the ed school, um, <laughs> nor do we have a medical center right. um, at right. the ed school. Right. So there are some areas that are, that are less familiar. And as I go into the job, you know, I'm reflecting an awful lot on um, what I did to prepare to be dean mm -hmm. that I found useful. Uh, and what I've learned on the job right. over the last four plus years um, that, uh, that basically give me a sense of the, not surprisingly, I'm thinking about the right questions to ask, that give me a sense of the right questions to ask. Okay. So what I'm really trying to do is, is learn as much as I can. I mean, this is, this is pretty standard stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to learn as much as I can, especially about the parts of the university that I don't already mm -hmm. know. And some of that is just through written material, but some of that is through conversations with the leaders of those schools. And then other parts of the university that I'm less, even less familiar mm -hmm. with. Um, and, uh, and then thinking hard about, okay, how um, should 
we go about formulating the priorities for the university moving forward. Because I do think that that's a really key part of a leader's job, which is to establish priorities and explain those priorities. But I think it needs to be a shared process. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I learned, and I don't know if you went through this, was to resist the, the temptation to try to answer on day one what your vision is. People will naturally ask you yes. that as soon as they hear yes. you've been hired. Yes. And my reaction when I first started was to just blurt something out because I thought, of course I need to have a vision, otherwise why would I take this job? You know, it doesn't seem so satisfying if you, if you say, I have no vision. <laughs> um, but you know that for a vision to be compelling to the community in, in, that you are trying to lead, it has to be a shared yeah, vision. And the only be. way that it can be a shared vision is if you spend time talking to people and getting a sense of their aspirations, what they see as the challenges, what they think the goals should be. Yeah. And so I, the one thing I have learned is to, tr is to resist um, trying to spell out or trying to provide just some answer to that and instead saying, I think that this needs to be a shared vision and part of that means talking to people before you articulate fully what you hope yeah. to do. Yeah, no, it's, um, you, you really describe a very important process I think that happens to everyone who steps into a leadership role that on day one that they should have that vision. And when you think about it is... It's why you would want to have a listening and learning tour first right. to have that vision informed. And right. it's informed by people who have answers to the questions that right. you ask right. as you begin the process of preparing to step into the role. Right. Another one of our colleagues helped me with that struggle when people would come meaning well asking about the vision. It was Nitin Noria, the, the dean of the business school. And uh, because he had faced this as well, yeah. and he said, you know, listening and learning to her first. Right. And that right. helped um, set the expectations at the right level. Right, right. But it really is about listening and asking questions. It's this important cycle. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly yeah. right. I, I want to change topics a little bit. And, um, uh, you know, uh, with respect to some troubling events recently in our current events that took place in Charlottesville. Yeah. Um, near the UVA campus, um, I realized that that must be weighing on you as you think about stepping into your role and thought if we could spend a little time reflecting on sort of what leadership challenges do you anticipate uh, you might face uh, with the proximity of uh, the events. Yeah. So I watched uh, the events unfold uh, online and, you know, was, was horrified. Um, I lived in Charlottesville, well I was a law student in Charlottesville in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, and then was on the faculty of the law school for 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I was immediately prior to coming here. Yeah. So I have a, a lot of friends in Charlottesville um, and was communicating with them throughout the couple of days. Um, and um, I hadn't yet decided whether to um, to take the job, mm. and that mm. clinched it for me, to mm. be honest. Mm. Um, I was actually thinking uh, while I was watching the events about a speech that Drew, Drew Faust gave shortly after um, the Boston Marathon bombing, and the theme of her speech was run toward. And she was talking about how, the first, how a number of first responders and a number of um, uh, participants and, and spectators 
after the bombs went off, instead of running away, ran towards those who were hurting. Um, and that, and her speech was running through my mind, and I thought, yeah, this is the moment to run toward. This is a place that I love. Um, this is a place that gave um, a tremendous amount to me and my family. And I don't know that I'll be able to help, but I thought I want to help um, to whatever extent I can. You're right that um, there will be challenges, but there are also opportunities. You know, I think um, this was a, whatever else it was, um, was a traumatic event yeah. for the yeah. community. Um, and, you know, that became clear to me uh, when I had a conversation with a student on the day of my announcement. Uh, and he said, you know, one thing that you need to recognize is that we're just kind of hurting. Um, you know, this, is, this has become part of the political dialogue, obviously, you know, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's another data point on how polarized the, the country is. But for the community there, it was a traumatic event. And I thought, well, that's exactly right. And so in some respects, I, it made me think of the question, well, how can I help? And I think part of that is asking first, you know, how can, how can I help? And not assuming going in, well, I know these are the five things that we should do in response. Right. But instead, right. it's listening to the community and thinking about, oh, rec recognizing that, well, first, there's, a, there's really a need to heal. Um, and then there's the need to think about, okay, what are some of the short-term responses and what are some of the longer-term responses? Yeah, yeah. And in terms of opportunities, you know, when an event like this happens, it does open up conversations that might not have otherwise occurred. And that, to me, is where some of the opportunity lies. Yeah. This is so consistent, so coherent with service leadership, run towards, and to have a very clear reason and rational thinking about how to overcome what um, that event could have represented if we don't run towards. Right. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. Mean, and to, to, to draw that analogy to what it felt like for us here in Boston at, in the marathon bombing, it was the same thing. I, I, I learned to look at Boston in a very different way right. as a result of that. Right. Having been a student here in the 80s, um, I, on that day, I saw a different Boston. I saw more integrated, more stronger, right. uh, more well-governed Boston as the response to that horrible event brought right. people together in a positive way. Right. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. Um, I know that we are down to less than five minutes, and um, I, I, I want to, um, to say that I appreciate so much how you've shared um, your impressive career and how that your career offers so many valuable leadership lessons and even in the response to this last question about the underlying process as you were making the decision uh, to become president at UVA I wonder if you would end the interview today by sharing your two top leadership strategies for the students two takeaway points that they can have um, as we wrap up this session um, so I think we've covered the, the, the top two, but I'll, I, will, I will say them again. Um, but actually, I'm going to 
I'm going to cheat and give you three, if that's Great. okay. Um, I'll take five. Uh, <laughs> that seems to be a number you like. I know. Well, <laughs> I, I do like odd numbers. <laughs> so I tend to think in threes or fives. Um, I would say five, but usually I, I lose track after four. <laughs> um, so, uh, so first, um, like I said earlier, never be defensive. Um, and recognize that even when um, someone is offering criticism, they're only offering criticism because they care. Yeah. Um, and they care about the institution that you care about mm -hmm. as well. Um, the second is, um, and it's related, is to listen carefully. I, I mean, I think that that trait is not um, highlighted enough as an important aspect of leadership, but you absolutely have to be listening, yeah. and and listening in all contexts and to all um, all um, all speakers, because sometimes the most important messages come in the most unlikely of situations and from the most unlikely of of people. Um, the third is you should absolutely um, not be afraid to make decisions. Uh, but you should always be willing to explain them. Mm. And that if you can't explain a decision, and if you're not willing, I mean, sometimes decisions involve confidential information yes. that you can't fully explain. But absent that exception, which is usually fairly limited, yeah. if you're not prepared to stand in front of an audience uh, of, of your community and explain why you're doing what you're doing, then, then you probably haven't made the right decision. That's three. That's it. Yeah, I'm three and I'm out. Three off the <laughs> Note, everybody, I asked for two and I got three. I did pretty good. <laughs> um, this has really been a terrific session. Jim, I can't thank you enough. Um, no, thank you I, for I, having me, really. I really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. And I, I want to thank um, our, our studio audience here and our audience online for being with us. And just to remind you all that our next Voices in Leadership event is on Thursday, November 9th with Donna Shalala, and I hope you can join us. Again, thank you, Jim. Yeah, no, it's it's my such pleasure. a pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank you. you this has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.